I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Stephen Kotler. That's it. That's the introduction, really. I mean, if you've been hiding under some kind of a rock somewhere, you may not have heard of his work. But if you're one of us, so you know Stephen as 11 times bestseller, damn, 11 times bestseller, including some real works of art. I mean, The Art of Impossible, The uh, Rise of Superman, of course, Stealing Fire, Abundance, Bold, uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think, among many, many, many others. Uh, In a very interesting way, I would probably say that Stephen has set the stage on topics that are really important in ways that he is probably the prominent authority on the topic. So he's also a a very, um, a serial entrepreneur with with many, many successful projects and, uh, and, and businesses. He is an avid environmentalist, an animal rights advocate who puts his money and effort where his mouth is. So he's actually a true philanthropist who does real impact. Stephen is the friend of one of my absolute best friends on the planet, Peter Diamandis, who I owe a lot to and really consider a brother. And uh, in all in all, when I met Stephen, when did we meet him? A month ago, I think, when I stood in front of Stephen, who is, for the record, a month older than I am. He looked 16 years younger than I am, which, uh, of course, as you can imagine also, I'm, you know, the chill, slow-mo. Stephen is full of energy, uh, full of uh, inspiration, always thinking about something very complicated. Uh, We always have the most wonderful conversation. So I'm absolutely certain you're going to love our conversation today, uh, Stephen Kotler. So, uh, Stephen... I have to start from the bit that you're not going to like. I I, I apologize for that. So slow-mo and the man of flow. And I have to wonder why. Like, so so I I lived both lives. I lived a life where I was constantly hyper-efficient, constantly improving my performance, constantly running right mad. I mean, even today I do nine full-time jobs right? Uh, I do them with, you know, probably better than the average person does them. I am running like crazy with a lot of passion to make those things a big difference. But I have to say there was a point in my life where I started to say, that's efficient enough. That's performance enough. And you don't seem to be in that space. You seem to be constantly optimizing for better and better and better. Well, a couple of things. Let's let this is a great question. I know this. I've used to, we're going to start it with a bad question. You missed. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, try harder. Um, no, no, this is a great question because it, it, it gets to the heart of uh, it gets to the heart of something that's worth talking about with flow and the heart of the work that I do with peak performance. And it's actually, this is really like it, we're going to talk about psychology going all the way back to Abraham Maslow with it. So I always try to point this out to people. Um, and this is, by the way, this is a real challenge with my company, the Flow Research Collective, because besides doing research into the neurobiology flow, we train people, right? In like 130 countries all over the world. And 
we fight the same battles everybody fights for attention right nobody wants to do a lot of reading everybody so we have to like come up with how do you summarize flow in a sentence if a state of optimal performance where we feel our best and perform our best doesn't capture it enough right because people here perform our best and they make the assumption that was sort of baked into your question which is that performance has something to do with efficiency as if that was what we were doing so let's talk about what do we mean by optimal performance first when we say flow first of all what do we mean by peak performance let's start there i define peak performance very simply as getting our biology to work for us rather than against us that's all i mean by it and this is not a new idea right you go back first psychology textbook ever ever written William James contains the line, the most important thing in any education is to make our nervous system our ally rather than our enemy. And for James, nervous system was brain and, and, and nervous system, right? It was the full system. So not a new idea, not a new idea. And James worked on flow. And, you know, a lot of this started right around James and Nietzsche and a couple other people in the late 1870s and 80s. This is where the field sort of got its start. When we define flow as optimal performance, we're talking mental and physical performance. So a bunch of physical skills get optimized, obviously strength, stamina, endurance, et cetera, et cetera, fast twitch muscle response, I can go on. But a bunch of cognitive skills get optimized. Now, when I say cognitive skills, yes, do you get more motivation, more creativity, more productivity and efficiency? Yes. But flow underpins well-being, overall life satisfaction, meaning and purpose. In fact, positive psychologists you know this, I'm sure, now define three tiers of happiness available to all humans on the planet, right? There's baseline where you're at right now. And because of emotional set points, there's not, we can come back to this if you want to, there's not a whole lot you can do. Dan Harris was right. You can get about 10% happier using mindfulness and reframing and, and a bunch of other really powerful tools, but you can get about 10% happier. You want to jump to the next level up, what psychologists define as enjoyment, that definition is a high flow lifestyle where the thing that is driving into a flow aligns you with your goals. Mm. The best we get to feel on the planet is purpose. And it's a yeah. high flow lifestyle where the thing driving you into flow aligns you with your purpose, right? And there are neurobiological reasons for all this and everything else. We can, we, we can talk about that. But um, when, like, think of, think about what I just said. The best we get to feel on the planet is when the thing that produces the most flow aligns with purpose. So, we're talking we're now we're having a conversation about well-being meaning overall life satisfaction purpose this is not what most people mean by efficiency it is by the way what i mean by efficiency when i think about it because i think that the human organism cannot function well without uh the full all of the major motivators pointed in the same direction with purpose being one of them access to flow being another, right so like these things are baked into my definition of efficiency because it's very it's actually broad and it's based by the neurobiology on the neurobiology of performance not based on a bunch of psychological terms that have gotten tossed out over the past hundred years because people are pointing vaguely at phenomenon that's actually neurobiological in origin this is honestly the best definition of performance I've ever heard in my life, honestly. Like when you really think about it, performance as is sold to us in the, you know, in the corporate world, in, in the world that, you know, that, that I lived in for sure, is push yourself, try really hard, squeeze out another 1% of extra performance. What you're saying is no, your peak performance is to be completely in resonance with what you're made for with your purpose and with the way you operate in life, with the tune that, that actually matches you. The only other thing, so 
if you go through Art of Impossible, for example, right, what do we mean by the practicality of peak performance? It's really like, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it's about seven things you got to do every day and about 15 things you got to do every week. Okay. That's what it really takes to optimize your system. It's very doable for most people. That said, let me, let me just like throw a wrench in this, which I'm building on your idea of purpose. Like everything you just said is true. I want to add something to it because I left it out. So we all have uh, what's in the lingo called a primary flow activity. This is that thing you've been doing since you were a little kid that drops you into flow the most, right? I don't know what it is for you. For me, it's usually skiing first. Writing would be a second. For my wife, it's like hiking our dogs through the backcountry. My best friend is playing guitar. You various people have various things. That's your primary flow activity. Why does it differ, Stephen? So we could talk about this as we go along, but flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. Everybody, for reasons that have to do with nature and nurture and where you are in your life, because these uh, is, are susceptible to more certain triggers. There's like 28 known triggers, 10 on the or 12 on the individual side. Then there's a shared collective version of flow, group flow, team flow, social flow, interpersonal flow, depending on how many people are involved. Um, that's just a team performing at their very best, right? That was Google that's X when you were there, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let me let me put a little context around it and then I'll back into what I was saying before because we're here and flow follows focus. I want to talk a little about the triggers. The thing to know about all flow tri triggers is there these are psychological words that produce neurobiological reactions, right? And so flow follows focus. It only shows up when all our attention is the right here, right now, focused on the task at hand. Now we can go into all kinds of detail, focus very specifically on the task at hand without ego involved and a whole bunch of other stuff we can talk about. But What's really sort of important is that's where that's where your head is at. And that's what all of flow's triggers do. They drive attention into the now. They do it a bunch of different ways neurobiologically. But for example, and this is what I want to go back to, risk is a flow trigger for obvious reasons, right? When there's danger involved, we pay more attention to what's in front of us. 100%, now, I don't yeah. just mean... Physical risk is one kind of risk, and, and that's why you see self flow in sports so much and combat sports and action sports. And there's studies of flow in war going all the way back. In fact, uh, Yuval Hariri, who everybody knows from Sapiens and Homodeus, uh, actually worked. He wrote a paper on flow in war. I want to say in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. Fascinating paper. Great, great. Actually did great work on it. But we also mean creative risks, intellectual risks, spiritual risks. Under the surface, it doesn't matter. We risk of all kinds drives dopamine. Dro dopamine drives focus, right? This shopping addiction, gambling addiction, you know, internet porn addiction, these are all dopamine-driven addictions. We're just saying, hey, you've got this system, harness it for flow. But risk, as you might imagine, your risk profile is different than mine. My risk profile today is different than it was 20 years ago, various other things. So our our ability to use risk as a trigger changes over time. Mm. So primary flow activity is usually an activity that has sort of your core, a core collection of three or four triggers that will mostly work for you. Usually most, oh, oh, how you approach your activity might change, right? How people ski at age 18 tends to be different from how people ski at age 50, unless you're right. like me and me Chan and then like, we invert that <laughs> like you know we're crazier now than that but most people are you know it's a different thing and uh my point was when it comes to a primary flow activity and peak performance 
what the data shows, uh, I'll come back to the data in half a second because it's amazing. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of it. The data shows that if we engage in our primary flow activity about three hours a week, four hours a week, we can stave off burnout and depression. Oh. And this is really key. So like this was really cool work. I don't know if you saw it. It came out of China during COVID. They did a bunch of studies on languishing and flourishing after COVID and during COVID. And they found that they wanted to know who's languishing after COVID, right? Adam Grant did a TED Talk where he talked about this research. They wanted to know who's languishing after COVID and why. And they found that the people who are flourishing after COVID right? The inverse of what their study was, were people who doubled down on the primary flow activity during COVID. And now the epidemic is quiet, was quieting down. This was a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago. Those people are now flourishing because they basically nourished their soul along the way where everybody else drove themselves into burnout. So we see this all the time. We get you know, at the Flow Research Collective, we train leaders and I mean, we train everybody, but we train a lot of like leaders, C-suite executives and 50% of them come and burnt the fuck out, right? They're just like, they are they are the guy you described or the mm. woman you described. We're trying to squeak an extra, you know, inch of progress out of their days and they're, they're, they're unsuccessful and they're going backwards. And one of the hardest things you have to do is convince these people that what they need to do is double down on their primary flow activity because adult life, right? What, yeah. are, we, what are we told? Oh no, you're an adult now. Put down childish things, <laughs> set down that surfboard, put away your comics. No, 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 don't spend hours playing video games or coding computers or you have a family now, you have a job, you have to get serious. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> like you're killing, you're killing the soul and you're actually killing the foundations of human performance. So like, I, so everything you said is true, but I want to add in also that like, yes, purpose matters, but also like some really sort of silly, basic, obvious stuff like, you know, it, you shouldn't have to say to people, hey, if you go out and actually have real, true, deep fun once a week, it's going to help you lift shit the rest of the time, right? Like that should, it's so basic. It's amazing. I often, um, this is why I don't, I train very few people in my company. I have the best coaches in the world and they train people. One of the reasons I don't, because I, I don't have patience for a lot of this stuff to me i'm like <laughs> you are like literally you're you literally like you you, you stop doing these things and you somehow think that like grinding it out for years on end and becoming a bitch to work with and an awful to be involved with in a relationship and all this stuff that goes goes with it like i don't get it i don't yeah. I, I don't i don't get it it's not like if i were to say okay mo the solution is you have to solve for pie Right. Then you would say, oh, okay, Stephen, no, no, let's not, do, let's not, right. But the solution is like go outside and play for three hours a week doing something that nurtures your soul. You, you are so spot on. You actually, this is so eye opening for me, Stephen. So I normally get close to burnout a couple of times a year because I sort of publish a book every other year and, you know, or a product somehow mid year. And then by the yeah, year yeah. end, November. You're singing my song. I'm on the same. I'm, yeah, I'm right with you on the same schedule, basically. Yeah, and yeah. then and then and then November normally is just very busy traveling and so on and so forth. So I get close to burnout in those two times of the year. This last year, I was so burned out by November. I was so burnt out, right? That I basically took all of December off. And then when the new year started, by the first of January, I'm looking at my WhatsApp. I have 148 conversations. Everyone asking for my time. And I really had to take a stand. And 
what I did was the opposite of what, of what everyone would think. And now you explain it and it's so clear. All I did is I told my team, look, when I have time and effort, I will work as much as I need to work. But the reason I feel so bad is because I haven't sat down to write for the last eight months, right? I couldn't with all the travel and publishing the book and so on and so forth. I just didn't have the time to sit down and write. And because I'm missing writing, I'm not able to do anything else. So the one change I did this year, which completely flipped my life upside down, is I added a week of every month where I call, I call it creative time. And don't come near me during the creative time. Just let me sit down and create content, you know, research something, write something, do whatever I want, you know, draw, paint, whatever I want, right? And I did that end of January. I feel amazing. Like all I needed was to add that one, call it task, but to me, it's really not a task that completely takes away all of my strain and stress and burnout. It's, it's incredible, really. So I'm always finding sort of like new little interventions. One of the things I've, I learned a long time ago that if I don't write, try to, you know, unless I'm traveling when I do, which is when I do the bulk of my reading, mm. I'm writing it when I'm home, I'm reading when I'm on the road, usually. And I need writing and skiing. Skiing is my high flow activity, my primary flow activity. And, you know, writing is another one. But I've discovered that, and really in a sense, this is about protecting my marriage from myself, that at the <laughs> end of the day, Do tell. Before, right, before I'm about to go interact with my wife and my family. So we know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, I do work on peak performance aging as well. And cognitive reserve is our protection against Alzheimer's and dementia. And I could talk more about that if you want, but yes. uh, work, work going. So uh, the sh old version of, of aging is all our skills decline over time. There's nothing we can do to stop the slide. That's the old version of aging. Don't tell me this. I, I was going well, to ask. But that's the old version. It. And that's what most people, I mean, that's by the way, still what most people believe, right? Mm. But the new version, 25 years of data. So I'm not talking about like what Peter Diamandis in my you know, friends of ours are working on in the longevity sciences. I'm talking about peak performance aging from, from a different perspective. But what we now know is all the skills we used to think decline over time, mental and physical, we now know they're all use it or lose it skills. So you can actually hold on to most of your skills far later and far longer in life than maybe thought possible. And there are actually a bunch of cognitive superpowers that start to come online in our 40s and 50s. So we're actually really well, we're really well built to thrive in our later years and part of this is Alzheimer's and dementia, which now, because we're living into our 80s and 90s, are, are real issues that we're almost everybody face. So Yakov Stern, who's at Columbia, discovered that we have cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve is literally, this is really cool. I have to get a little technical here. When we suffer from Alzheimer's and dementia, as you probably know, these are predominantly diseases of the prefrontal cortex. And right? It's the prefrontal cortex is the newest structure in the brain. So it's the most susceptible to kind of brain diseases, right? The evolutionarily deep structures, like our reward system that's deep in the center of the brain or the amygdala fear system, very little touches them. Like mm -hmm. you can possibly have a stroke to those areas and there's certain diseases like Parkinson's and a couple other things, but it's very hard to get there. Most of the damage is the prefrontal cortex. So if you want to fight off Alzheimer's dementia, what you need is redundancy in the prefrontal cortex and the brain, when the brain learns something, it's 
redundancy is how it does it, right? It, when we talk about neural nets, functional connectivity, you never get the exact same neurons lighting up each time, right? There's a cluster of neurons that could light up, right? And one of those ones is going to light up. And which one it is, we can tell you the probabilities, but we can't point to it, right? Because it's non-deterministic. That said, the brain loves multiple systems. It doesn't ever learn how to do things one way. It learns how to do it six or seven different ways right so what yakov figured out is that for every additional quote-unquote leisure activity i learned to draw i learn a foreign language i learned to play guitar i take up knitting whatever you get an eight percent additional it builds it's additive benefit protection against all you build up cognitive reserve so interesting and what they all say this is this is one of the things i always talk about when i talk about peak performance aging is in fact, Yakov said this back in the 90s, I think in his first paper on this, he said, what the research says is if you want peak performance aging, start young. You need a lot of these skills to really stave this mm -hmm. off. So like people who do uh, sort of what we do, where we use our brains in lots of different ways to earn a living, have a head start, right? People who have expertise in a bunch of different areas, they have a head start, but you still need to add these things in. And uh the last conversation, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi passed away during COVID. And while he, I, I am hesitant to call him a mentor or a friend because I didn't know him well enough to put him in either of those categories, but he was very helpful at very key points in my career. Um, we had several along the way. I had like, like every two years, I'd have a conversation with him. It would totally reshape things. And the last conversation I had with him before he died, he basically was talking about this very thing, like have a bunch of these flow generating skills as you age, if you really want a high quality, high quality later years. He had basically, he was a hiker, mountaineer outdoorsman. Little known fact about me, he had me high, rock climb mountain. And this, he had a house in Montana. This is what he did for, this was primary flow activity. And the last thing he said to me, actually, in our last conversation, he said, you have to be really careful. Because you can do something your entire life for flow, and then you get to my, be my age, and he was then in his late eighties, and he's like, "Forget about climbing mountains or rocks. I can't get out of bed." And what he was saying, and he said, "Have a backup plan." He was telling me the last conversation I ever had with Mike. He said, "Stephen, get a fucking backup plan because I know you're a crazy skier, and if that's what your plan is going forward, you're going to run into the same problem I ran into." And it was a really like it was eye opening. So the first thing I did was I started teaching myself how to draw. It's a long story to get oh. back to the fact, but I so I started teaching. I start make a drawing a day, and I make it in the gap after work and before I go see my wife because it's like a little ten to fifteen to twenty minute flowy exercise that gets me sort of out of my head what it really does is it calms my ego down right you spend <laughs> a day work sometimes and you know you need to sometimes you need a healthy healthy ego to run companies and do our jobs and things like that that's not usually the best thing for a marriage i've discovered <laughs> i don't know I why yeah. I, I don't know why that is mo um but i'm not very smart but uh anyways so I, I, I do a little mini flow activity at the end of every day. And it, I find it does like three things. It'll like, it calms me down and allows me to like, I don't have a really hard time meditating later as a result or yeah. reading or like it basically like it calms me down enough that like everything I do after that works. But um, that was a really long tangent. Actually, not at all. It's so basically you're, 
designing your life around flow activities. You're, you're, you're allowing yourself to live your primary flow activity at least once a week. And then you have mini flow activities, you call them. And I have a question. I mean, shouldn't you have a bit of proficiency in drawing to actually get to flow? I mean, in that case, mm-hmm. you, you'd mm-hmm. be struggling a little bit. It, it wouldn't feel like flow. It yeah. would feel yeah. a little so- bit more like a struggle, right? You're talking about a, a, a slightly different flow trigger, which is the challenge skills balance. It's the classic trigger of flow. This yeah. is flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand. When that task, the challenge of it slightly exceeds our skill set, right? You want to stretch, but not snap. But you need enough skill that you can automatize the process. So, yeah. yes. You, now, okay, here's the thing that I left out of this particular story, which is... I have a degree in art from years ago. It's a minor in art. And I was, I was life drawing was, it wasn't, I was a painter and a performance artist and I was not a light. I, I didn't have those skills, but I loved it. I loved the class. I loved the challenge. And I, um, I, I noticed something about my drawing, which was uh, I had real, I didn't have any skill, no skill mo, but I had, because of my, because of the, where we started the design background, the advertising about all that stuff, I have great instincts around style. So if you don't know what you're looking at, you're going to think I'm really talented. If you have <laughs> any whatsoever and know what you're looking at, you're going to think I'm shit and I'm covering up for the fact, right? <laughs> um, you'll see through it. And my, so my teachers hated me, but my fellow students loved me because they couldn't tell what I was doing, but the teacher knew I was conning everybody, but I could make stuff look really artsy. It looked like art. It just wasn't particularly technically proficient and it always bugged me. So I always knew that I wanted to go back and get that technical proficiency because I was curious. I was like, wow, I could really, I sort of could make art. So what happens if I actually add some skills and really, and really gain that proficiency? So that's what I've been doing. And I, to answer your question, to minimize that particular, the struggle issue, certainly you're going to struggle. I create really tight constraints. I only for the first year I only drew in pencil and charcoal. Now I've since added in black pen. Uh, I work on one color paper. I don't work on any and I work there are certain categories of things I've been drawing in. I don't ever want to get bored, so I'll go back and forth, but like there's certain things I'm trying to learn how to draw and certain things I've been like, oh, okay. Yes, it'd be really cool to learn how to draw like really sci-fi machines. But that's not right now. I'm going to put that off for right. Like so, I've I've built tight containers around it so that yes, I'm going to struggle. Of course, there's going to be a learning period. But I had a foundation, and the other th- secret is this. And this is this is funny in a sense because uh, this is this is part, one of the reasons I I sort of have a career. I have a career in studying the neurobiology of flow for a couple of different reasons, but like one research in America went away for one reason and research in Europe went sideways for a different reason in the nineties. Europe went sideways in my opinion, because they started arguing at a psychological level over ridiculously absurd details. Let me give you a very (laughs) simple example of this argument. There was a 10 year debate about, it was really a debate over play over what they call non-goal-directed flow versus goal-directed flow. So yeah. we knew you could have goal-directed flow. That was that much was very, very, very clear. 
The Europeans kept saying, oh, no, but there's also non-goal-directed flow. There's this play stuff and blah, 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 blah. And um, they spent a a decade arguing over, over this. And I kept saying the whole time, look at the neurobiology. You guys are looking at the longer level of scale. They answer this question because if you look at the question of play from a neurobiological level, what does play get you? It gets you dopamine. But what does goal-directed behavior get you? It gets to dopamine. So it doesn't actually matter what the psychological term we put on the cover is. Neurobiologically, the reward is literally the same chemicals bonding to the same receptors in the same part of the brain, lighting up the same functional network. That's an identical, that's identical, right? In neurobiological terms, that's essentially an identical process. So um, it was a ridiculous debate. And for those of us who like even had, I didn't really speak neurobiology that well in the 90s. I was you know, I was learning the field then, but even this was obvious to me. That was a weird tangent. Again, let's go back to you. Bo. You know, it's really interesting because we actually, once again, you're bringing up the topic of play as a good thing for you, which is demonized by the modern world, right? So the, the idea of the industrial revolution sort of telling you to do exactly the same thing that you're told over and over and over to make more shoes so that they can make more profits going into what you know i i actually think is now dying out a little bit the whole concept of gamification that we started to see by the turn of the century and trying to you know to get people to sort of simulate a game so that they can get into flow while at work but obviously didn't really work that well because you're simulating a game. You're not really addressing the individual's triggers for flow. And this was always one of the things uh, yeah. Jane's work on gamification, right? That, that I always, I always want to have this conversation, which is it's always gamers who are arguing for gamification and yeah. for gamers, it's perfect. Exactly. You know what I mean? And, 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 and don't, so Mo, I will also tell you, I, once every two years, gamify my life. But whenever I want to make a big change, I create a point system and I incentive. Peter taught me years ago, the amount is right. You get what you incentivize. I learned that lesson from Peter very, very well years ago. And so I realized that I could create a, a, a point system where like, if I double down on my primary flow activity, I get five points and blah, blah, blah. And I could, so I could figure out a good week is a hundred points or that sort of stuff. And I did it for a while. Sometimes I'll train people uh, in how to do it uh, depending. And I, we do in my peak performance aging class. I actually think uh, we did finally train people in this, but um, I can do it for two months. It's incredibly motivating for two months, right? Just to make it change. But like once the change is locked in, I'm out of the game. And it, other than like full game, full time gamers, that I think is everybody's experienced. Yeah, because it's not a game anymore then. Right, exactly. Let's go to aging because you mentioned it a couple of times. I mentioned it in the, in the introduction, you 42 year old looking man. What other tips? So I actually have to agree with you on two things you mentioned so far. One is use it, right? So whatever you use continues to be young. And that idea of the diversification, which in my mind, I thought was sort of like, because it gives you a chance to live passionately about life. But obviously there is also another, you know, sort of an, a neural benefit to it, which is it creates more reserve sort of, right? What else? I mean, physically, mentally. Yeah. Let's, let's start, let's stay on the physical side for a second. Um, cause this is really clear, by the way, this is not, this is not a secret. This WHO publishes guidelines along these, along these way, ways now. So we know 
that all the skills we used to think we lose over time are use it or lose it skills, which means you have to train them. Now, uh, and Peter and I actually totally agree on this. You can perform as your, at your best very, very late in life, but you actually have to start training for old age sort of like, I don't want to say professional athlete because I know a lot of professional athletes and I actually know how much they're training, but you have to train at least as hard as a very serious amateur athlete, to put it that way. What the research shows is you need about 150 to 300 minutes of vigorous exercise a week. You need roughly like two or three cardio days You that minute time. You need a couple of additional strength training days a week. And you need to train balance, agility, and flexibility a couple times a week as well. So there are very sort of like, we know the numbers and how long you have to train things for and, ver and various things to get the results you want. And you have to train them all at once also, which is where a lot of like, where do people go wrong? They do things like as they age, for example, they, they start adopting, oh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to ski anymore. Or I'm like, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I could, I could break. Instead, I'm gonna go run on a treadmill, and that's, um, it's a disaster for a lot of a lot of different reasons. I mean, I could go into a million of them, but it's a really bad plan, and you're making your heart a little more efficient. And maybe you know, in the beginning, you're training up your lungs. If you're doing sprint training along the VO max training along the way, you'll maintain it. But as a general rule, like you need strength training, you need. The iron is your friend. I'll give you a weird stat that most people don't know. I'll let you guess. What do you think is the single most important physical correlate for longevity and uh, for quality of lifespan and longevity? Hmm. Um, I'd say muscle mass, which probably means... Okay. You are, you're right. Be more specific. I would say heavy lifting, probably. It's thigh muscle mass. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Thigh yeah, muscle yeah. mass inversely correlates with mortality. So the stronger our thighs are, the longer we live. And there's a bunch of different reasons. And it's not, it's also the stronger our thighs are, the more we preserve cognitive function, not just That's incredible. Function, cognitive function. So there's a bunch of reasons why, but I'll, let me give you one that you're not thinking about that most people don't think about. So your brain runs on essentially calcium, right? Potassium, calcium, sodium. Mm -hmm. Where do you think those substances are stored in the body? Uh, liver? Bones. No way. Oh, yeah, calcium is obviously bones, yeah. Right? So what happens to bone density over time? It decreases. Correct. What they're, the cutting edge of peak performance aging right now is the relationship between bone density in bone health and cognitive function because the bones are the mineral storehouses for the body and the brain and the brain uses 20 percent of our energy and that that includes cal things like calcium and whatever so like it's got a big operating budget and some of that operating budget is coming out of our bones which fade over time but if you lift heavy you preserve bone mass over time one of the things in our country that I emphasized a little bit, and there's an argument, there are people argue back and forth on, on the effectiveness of this, but I look for one of the secrets that we 
sort of train for at the Flow Research Collective because everybody we train is, is is busy, right? It's the commonality among all the people we train. Everybody's so so busy. So I look for what I call multi-tool solutions. Mm. Don't give me a problem that's going to solve one. I, I Life is too short and I move too fast to solve problems one at a time. <laughs> I need a solution that's going to solve like 11 things at once for me to even consider it. So like, I'll give you an example. An infrared sauna as a recovery tool is a great multi-tool solution. Meditation. Why, why is that? So for flow, flow is a very high performance state. And one of the things that we learned about flow back in the 90s is it's not a binary, you're not in the zone or out of the zone. It's a cycle. It's a four-stage cycle. You name the, the you name the, the front end of the cycle earlier when you talk about struggle, that's the first phase of the flow cycle, the struggle phase, you're loading the brain with information so you can perform it automatically, right? With less cognitive interference. Then there's a release phase where you sort of take your mind off the problem, flow state itself, and then there's a recovery phase. Those are really high energy state. So if you're going to be getting into regular, if you want to use this stuff at, at, light, at, at work on a daily basis, you have to recover on a daily basis from that flow state and if you're if you're adding in you know the, some of the peak performance aging stuff that we're talking about where you're actually gonna have to start really training a little bit harder also then you have to double down on recovery so um there are a bunch of there are passive recovery tools and active recovery tools passive recovery which is what most people do which is tv and a beer is a disaster um, it blocks, <laughs> a blocks recovery. Like, here, there's a million we can go into the details here but like it blocks recovery. That is bad. Let's and let move on to like what is good. Well, long restorative walks in nature, breath work, or, or meditation, Epsom salt baths, yeah, restorative yoga, and I love infrared saunas. Why? Three reasons. One, I could do it for like forty minutes at the end of my day. It automatically lowers cortisol levels. So unlike a lot of the other recovery things out there. Infrared saunas, being a sauna in general, low it flushes cortisol out of your system. So you it automatically makes you less stressed, which I think is great. Two, I do breath work in the sauna. Oh. So right, I do I do my breath work in the sauna and I do two kinds of breath work. One, I do kind of the more rigorous Wim Hof style, that sort of breathing exercises because there's copious data besides resetting your nervous system that you can enhance cardiovascular function and lung function athletically by doing breath work in a sauna. So it's one of the, the, the better ways. I don't train cardio as hard as I train other things. And one of the reasons is because I can cut into that in by doing breath work in the sauna. I also, so Back to flow triggers for a second and back to stacking protocols, right? Multi-tool solutions. Creativity is a flow trigger. Flow amplifies creativity. It was a feedback system. So creativity yeah. itself. And we know this because pattern recognition, linking ideas together, produces dopamine. And dopamine right. works as a flow trigger, right? <clears throat> so we know this. One of the mistakes that people really make in the modern world is specialization. And the reason is if you're specialized, 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 you're not, yeah, you might be learning new stuff about your specialty, but there's not huge, like you're learning stuff that's right next door to the stuff you already learned. So you're not having those like big aha moments of revelation. But uh, if you really want to amplify flow and prepare your body for flow, 
you have to feed the pattern recognition system. And the very best way to do it is read about 20 to 30 pages of nonfiction a day, usually outside your skill set. So you, you want to read something that you're curious about, right? But it's outside your skill set because there's nothing outside your skill set is a really funny statement because we have pattern recognition systems for brains. So once you read something that's outside your skill set, your brain, because it does pattern recognition, is going to find the links. So anything yeah. outside your skill set, it doesn't stay outside your skill set, of course. You're breaking it in, right? Into your skill set. But because it's far away, you've got real conditions for it's a big leap, big connections, lots of dopamine priming the brain for flow. So I like to do all those things inside an infrared sauna. And I, you know, like a 40 minute sauna, I can read for 20, 25 minutes. I can do my, and I can do my breath work for the day and I can do a recovery protocol. And with breath work and focus, final thing is flow is a focusing skill. It's not quite the same way of focusing the brain you do use in mindfulness, but it's, it's a focusing skill. And the more flow you get, the more flow you get, and the more focus you get, the more, more flow you get. So by training the brain, on mindfulness, on meditation, on these kinds of springs, you're making yourself more flow prone over time. So this is a multi-tool solution. Saunas are great because I'm training up the pattern recognition, I'm training focus, I'm calming down, losing cortisol, I'm using mindfulness and breathwork to also calm down my nervous system. This makes it easier to get into the challenge skills balance and stay in that flow zone we talked about earlier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So remember when I said you, you need to do about six things every day and seven things every week, one of the things you need to do for every day is have an active recovery strategy in place. So how much of your time do they dedicate to all of this, Stephen? I mean, it's not really much. It's not, it's actually, I would say it's an hour. It's, it's about an hour a day, maybe a little bit more. You have to, so when, so one of the things, let me give you another example, because a lot of the things that you have to do every day, you're going to do other you're going to it's it's more about how to do them rather like things you're going to do normally and it's how to do them so i'll give you an example if you can you want to start your day with a 90 minute block of uninterrupted concentration that 90 minutes is the brain has built in focus slots that are 90 minutes long like we go through a REM cycle that's about 90 minutes long we have a focus waking cycle that's the same length and the research shows that you want to start well you want to start your work session in line with your body clock, right? So I'm an extreme lark. I start working at four o'clock in the morning because that's when I'm at my best. Most people are normal. And they, you know, eight, nine o'clock is when they start working. And that's when they're at the best. My wife's a night owl. She doesn't wake up till four o'clock in the afternoon. And that's when she starts. So you want to, if you can work your, this 90 minute section in accordance with your, your actual circadian rhythms. Cause again, get your biology work for you rather than against you. It's really, hard to fight your circadian rhythms in this way but start your day with a 90 minute block or put it you know start your work session with a 90 minute block of uninterrupted time what you do in that block is completely up to you right like i write because that's my most important thing percent right and if i get that done for a day i've won my day so that's of course what i'm going to do first right managers usually want to strategize I'm going to have all these meetings and all these conversations during the day. These are my goals. This is what I'm aiming for. That's their best use of that like 90 minute block and maybe a phone call or two kind of thing, but like whatever it is. Um, so when you ask a question, like how much time does it take? Well, it, it's less about the time it takes and more about how I'm exactly using the time that I have and in a, in a high flow way. 
right? And that 90 minute block of concentration, you have to like, you have to be smart about it. You gotta have conversations with your wife, with your spouses, with your bosses, with your friends, like leave me alone. Flow, you know, in most studies amplifies creativity about 500% above baseline. You're gonna get my time back. You give me 90 minutes in, in flow and I'm gonna do so much more work. You're gonna get more of me later, not less. Just leave me alone for 90 minutes. That's all I ask, right? Like it's, again, really commonsensical and people freak out. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're, according to the McKinsey studies on productivity, you're 500% more productive in flow. In two hours in flow, you can do essentially eight hours worth of, of days worth of work. <laughs> like, you know, that's absurd. Would you believe me if I tell you that most of my breakups post my first marriage were a result of not being given that 90 minutes. Like I would simply tell the woman in my life, all I ask is don't touch me until I finish writing. Just give me until 11 a.m., please. Like I wanna make my coffee slowly. I wanna sit down and do whatever, you know, is running in my head. I wanna put it on paper and then I'll be yours for the rest of the day, please. And yeah, when that fails, I would go like, huh, not working doesn't matter how incredible you are. I just need my 90 minutes. Yeah, it's, by the way, Mo, I have to tell you, this is no different than when I work with organizations. You know what I mean? When I work with organizations, a couple of things that I, you know, that I tell people is, is the first thing I always say is if you can't hang a sign on your office door that says, fuck off, I'm flowing. <laughs> exactly. You can't do this work. <laughs> you just can't do this work, right? So like you have to have your, you have to be working in an environment where you can have these conversations out loud Yes, it goes against, I mean, you know, we started our conversation this morning with like things that Silicon Valley did wrong, right? <laughs> things, things, open office plans, disasters, all the like instant messaging Slack channel. I'm going to ping you 3000 times an hour. Like what? Like, I mean, what? Did nobody bother to talk to a psychologist? Or did you just, when you had the conversation with the psychologist, was your entire conversation about how can we make the most money, right? Either you were, either you're ignorant and you didn't bother to have the conversation or you're knowledgeable and you're evil. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah, it, it is actually quite interesting when you think about it, because a lot, a lot of the design of the corporate world is really all centered around how do we appeal to the extroverts who are truly revving all the time to make the most money, right? When in reality, I think most people don't realize that very often the most successful out there, the ones that are actually making a difference, they're not the ones that work the most hours. They're not the ones that are extroverted at all. And they are by definition in need of some me time to be able to just do things, right? Otherwise they're just talking, talking, talking. And it's, it's quite interesting when you look at how that becomes almost the example that we follow. It's like, you should be like this guy who's always out partying when the truth is that's not always the most productive. No, it's again, like, you know, in a sense, there's a kind of very dominant extroverted salesperson mm. who seems to be, and there's a sort of like hyper aggressive wall street finance attitude, right? <laughs> those, right. Those two things. This is why I started the conversation. And I said, I think Jeff Bezos broke Silicon Valley and it's not, I'm not, I'm not meaning to diss Jeff. I'm actually just saying he brought Wall Street. He came from Wall Street. 
Yeah. He came to Wall Street, brought Wall Street values to Silicon Valley. Whether or not Jeff had the ethical maturity to handle those values, most of the rest of Silicon Valley did not. And mm. um, so you import like Wall Street competitiveness into like, and it, it broke geek culture as far as I'm concerned in, in like really weird ways. But uh, that's a different story. But uh, this is uh, the point I wanted to make uh, a second ago was the other thing I, I tell people, you made it, you made this point about my life, but I wanted to say this from the, the, the organizational side is when you work with companies, right? It's not just that flow should be the center of your personal life to that stuff. You got to make it the center of your organization that you got to make driving your people in because you have to also understand all the benefits you get from it. I'll give you a couple things that we hear about all the time in the corporate environment. You can't create a high flow culture without psychological safety. So something corporations spend a lot of time on right now, baked into flow. So a lot of the things that we're talking about flow because it's optimal performance, there's certain conditions for it underneath it, right? Like what we want in good organizations come by making flow the center of your organization. But if you're not driving your employees into flow on a regular basis, chances are your turnover rates are extremely high, Correct. first of all, yeah. right? Especially in today's you know modern modern environment where, where loyalty is not like people aren't loyal to companies anymore. They just you know jump around and uh and that's fine. You know what I mean? That's that's exciting and interesting. And I think that's that I don't necessarily know if that's a bad or a good thing. I don't have a judgment there, but I just know it's part of the environment. Employee retention, it, a lot of it is about flow, right? And you want to work with a team that is great at nothing is more fun. This is why startups are so damn addictive, right? On your way to a product launch in a startup company, it's group flow nonstop. It's like every time you show up at work, you're dropping back into group flow because that's what it takes to get a startup to launch. And, um, you know, I, I'll laugh, but I'll joke with Peter, the Amandus, who, you know, I've started uh, 16, 17 companies at this point. Peter's like, 27 20 i actually think it's in his 30s at this point um because he's got a bunch of, there's <laughs> a bunch of longevity companies yeah, well it was 27 and then he started a bunch of longevity companies and there's i think a couple companies that he started in covid doing something with ai and healthcare that i'm not totally aware of but anyways that's an addiction to flow that's the flow you think Right. And I always tease Peter about this. I'm like, Peter, like you love getting it to launch. And then you're like, on to the next project. I'm like, you know, you're the only dude in the world who thought you could run an asteroid mining company in the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you see, I mean, look who's talking. And I mean, both of us. I know. I not being the Silicon Valley sort of mindset, I start so many businesses. I don't call them companies. Right? I actually call them products, which are really yeah, the product products or projects or yeah, yeah. I was like, so in in philosophy, Mo, you know, they they have problems, right? Like what they're really saying is, I work on the hard problem of consciousness, or like I work on epistemology or whatever. But like, I like the humility. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm working on the problem of consciousness. What they really meant is, like, the past seventy years, this is all I've done. But it's the you know, it's a, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But but it but it is. There is when you call it an addiction to flow. And I have to admit, in the last couple of years, I really it started to really hit me very clearly because you sort of gain skills along your path, right? So to be chief chief business officer of Google X, you have to learn business skills, discipline skills, and so on. But it really hit me very hard because at the end of the day, I'm just a creative person. 
right? I just want to make things. That's all I want. Like whatever things, you know, if you leave me alone, you know, I'll build a fish tank or like a, if you really tie me down in a, in a tiny little cell and say, you can't move, but one finger, I'll try to scratch the wall and just draw something on it. Okay. And the idea is in a very interesting way, I actually think I'm addicted. I want to me to keep making things. When you say addicted to flow, that's actually quite interesting because that is. Oh, no, this is, yeah, I'm using a, so Chicksetme High pointed this out decades ago. It might actually be in the book Flow. I don't think it is. I think it's, uh, I think it's one in one of his other books, but from right around the same era, we're talking about the early 90s. He said, so first of all, Flow Cocktails, five of the most addictive pleasure neurochemicals in the brain. Yeah. Right. I, I think and, it's the only state where we have dopamine and serotonin both in the blood at the same yeah, time. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And it's not so more research is we know you get dopamine at the front end and serotonin in the back end, like the afterglow flow is serotonin. Those chemicals tend to work in opposition, right? When Correct. dopamine yeah. goes up, serotonin goes down, and vice versa. There is some data, and we are actually in the process, we're about six to eight months away from being done with this, but we, we, we found a way to track neurochemicals in the brain in real time over long stretches of time that will give us oh, hopefully wow. this, this data. Yeah, we sort of, we found a way to repurpose some COVID tests and use them to find neurochemistry levels and it's working really well. And we're gonna use it, our, the first two we're starting with our serotonin and dopamine and the first tests are basically tracking those levels over time yeah. in like a month as people move in and out of flow. So track flow and then track the, those neurochemical levels and it's gonna tell us the answer to the, what you just raised. But anyways, so yes, you're right. You get these five, these five neurochemicals. They're the most addictive chemicals on earth. This is like, you know, I mean, we talk about gambling addiction or sex addiction or whatever. And you're really talking about like a little bit of norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine flow is like those two chemicals plus three others, maybe four talking about group flow. It's crazy in terms of its addictive power. But what Csikszentmihalyi said years ago, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow, pointed out that uh, flow is unlike other addictions. It's addictive, it's addictive as hell. It's unlike other addictions because all other addictions lead backwards. And flow, because it's an addiction to improving on your channel, uh, using your skills to the utmost and getting, and getting better, extending yourself, it's an addiction that leads forward. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still an addiction and there's a dark side of flow, right? If you have a, we see this all the time, we deal with like retiring professional athletes or retiring special forces, or by the way, people who have moved from, I was running startups to now I'm running a sort of more mainstream company. I never Um, do that. For a lot, one of the reasons is you get locked out of flow, right? And so then it's the dark side of flow. And I mean- you know, I want to say I've broken a lot of bones in my life, and I want to say <laughs> at least 50% of them have been because I'm doing something stupid because I'm suffering through the dark side of flow, and I've decided that I'm going to use okay. high risk, right? High physical risk as a flow trigger, um, thinking that if I just do this dumb thing, I'll be in flow on the other side, forgetting that there's like a 5% chance I'm going to end up in the hospital mm. because you you do that enough over time, you you know, I've been to the hospital a lot. <laughs> it's funny because again, you know, when we met, I'm the exact opposite. I never ski, bungee jumping, no way. 
like roller coasters just because my daughter likes them, but otherwise I wouldn't come near them. I, I just don't get that concept at all. It's not a trigger for me at all. I uh, cannot explain it because it's yeah. been there. One, it's been there my whole life. And two, like I've, I've always been drawn to like riding my skateboard, you know, can I ride it down this hill or like, can we, can I, you know, jump my bike over this thing as a little, little kid simultaneously, I was bullied in school. And when you're bullied and when you're bullied, when you're young, one of the things you always want to do is find ways to assert your bravery, improve yourself again and again and again. And so like, I think from like the time I started studying martial arts to the time I started dating action sports very seriously, some yeah. of it was unwired this way. Some of it was very flowy and some of it is like, you know, I'm making up for the sins of allowing myself to be bullied as a small child. Hmm. That's, that's so interesting. And so, so it triggers martial arts and other forms of physical superiority, sort of? Uh, no, I, so my problem with being bullied was not about the bully. I don't give a flying, like people are people, whatever it's going to happen. My problem is that I didn't like the reaction I had on the inside and how it made me feel. I didn't like feeling fear. I didn't like, so any, in any situation where I would feel fear, one of the things being bullied taught me is go right at the fear because the feeling I want to feel is on the other side of that. And when you're being bullied, the only way to get right at that fear is to learn how to fight, right? When you're drawn to action sports, as I was my whole life, um, you have to go do the thing that scares you the most over and over and mm. over again. Larry Hamilton and I used to talk about this all the time. Larry will say that if you're not doing something every day that really scares you, you're probably not living hard enough. And that's layered. Though I will say that I think that possibly is true, whether it's intellectual or physical risk. I think that may be true almost every day for me, where you know I'm taking a kind of a creative risk or an intellectual risk or a physical risk that scares me. I don't want to scare myself. I don't want to really scare myself, right? Because then I'm then I'm over my skis and I'm taking on too much. But I want a little bit of it all the time, you know, in everything I do. So interesting. So for our listeners, uh, Stephen, so, you know, if someone is new to the concept of flow, mm -hmm. you know, someone who just spent a bit of their life doing things, you know, because they have to do them, they don't have that experience of sort of leaving the world and being in total flow, you know, a few times a week. What would be the first tips and advice? What should one start with? Yeah, so it's funny because we actually... We talked about three, there's, I'm going to talk about maybe five things. Mm -hmm. Let me just start really practically with the stuff we've already covered. So first thing, place to easiest place to start, double down your primary flow activity. Most of us have put how, it aside how, entirely. How do we find out so like, what that is? Well, I like, okay. So what I tell people is if you don't know what that is, let me back up for a second. Let me, I, I like to explain why things work in the body before I give people advice. So I want to, I want to start there. We were talking earlier about how flow produces these big five, big neurochemicals or six big neurochemicals. So quick shorthand for how does learning and memory work in the brain? Yeah. The more neurochemicals that show up during the experience, the better chance that experience gets saved for later. Neurochemicals are essentially multi-tools in the brain. They do lots of different things. One of the big things they do is they tag experiences, really important, save for later, right? So we tend to remember flow states is my point. And 
Certainly, we. So if you think about ages ten to twenty, or ages zero to ten, and you were to think about your favorite memories, some of them are going to be like tied to somebody you love, perhaps, or events. My birthday, my right. But if they're not tied that way, you're remembering flow states. So one, think about just go through your life ten years at a time and think about what are my big memories. What do they have in common? Was I outside? Was I inside? Was I taking risks? Was I not taking risks? What were the conditions? Was I alone? Was I with other people? So you don't know what your primary flow activity is. Look at these flowy memories you have, right? And look at the commonalities. And chances are that those commonalities are going to add up into an activity where you actually think about it. You're like, oh, I forgot this. I'd only done it maybe 15 times, but every time I did it, God, that was amazing. I need to do more of this, right? That's how sort of, most people know what know what I'm talking about when I say primary and fellow activity. And you know, you knew right away. You were like writing. It didn't. You didn't even think about that. Most people tend to. That's most people's reaction. But if they don't, this is one way of, of figuring it out. So that's the obvious thing. Start with your primary flow activity, and then I always tell people start with three flow triggers. Start with one complete concentration in that 90 minute block we talked about wall off, start your work day. And you don't, if 90 minutes is intimidating, because some people it's terrifying. The idea of like, I'm going to focus and not talk and be by myself for 90 minutes. Like that's terrifying to some people. So they have to start with 20 minutes at a time or a half an hour at a time and build themselves up. But like we have a built-in slot for focusing for 90 minutes. So what people find often as they start doing this is they will naturally move to that 90 minute block a lot faster. Like people who are like, oh my God, there's no way this will ever work for me. And they start with like 25 minutes a day and within a week or two, they're at 90 minutes because the 25 minutes is so delicious and so works so well that like they get it now. And it, right. So that's one. Two, we talked about the challenge skills balance. So you want to stretch, but not snap. You want to, so what does this mean emotionally? It means that, you want to be just outside your comfort zone, right? Not overwhelmed, not totally. That's too much. You're producing too much cortisol and norepinephrine, your block flow, but underwhelmed boredom, not enough nor- norepinephrine and cortisol, yeah. your block flow in between is this sweet spot. And it's just sort of outside your comfort zone. So for shy, meek, risk averse folks, you got to get a little comfortable being uncomfortable. Flip side, type A hard chargers who will take on these huge challenges simply for the thrill of it. This is especially true with, with people. Uh, you see it a lot in Silicon Valley because you see it a lot with people with ADHD and ADD where they, mm-hmm. they take on these huge challenges because it helps them focus. And I'm not saying don't take on those huge challenges. It's actually really good from motivational science perspective. Huge challenges are great for motivation. You have to chunk it down though. So what's right in front of you is like, if the huge challenge is like 50% greater than your skills, you want to chunk it down. So what's in front of you is like four or 5% greater than your skills for the day. That's what you're doing now. The whole challenge is enormous. So that's the second thing you want to do. You want to double down your primary flow activity, start carving out, periods of uninterrupted concentration for your for, for your highest flow work. And then as you approach that work, you want to be just outside your comfort zone. And yeah. the final the final thing uh, I will tell people is, so this is really silly, but uh, this is most people tend to be a little burned out. And this is, a, so this is also a great 
burnout cure. Uh, it also works as a flow hack. So clear goals are a flow hack, okay? Or a flow trigger. Now, let me spend a little bit of time on what I mean by clear goals, because people hear clear goals, especially in Western cultures, and the immediate focus is on the goal, right? They immediately hear the goal part and they yeah. skip to the clear part. And I, emphasis is actually on clarity. So flow follows focus. Our focus stays on the task at hand when we know what it is that we're doing and we know what it is that we're doing next. I tell people you want to start your day or end your day by making, I end my day or I start my day. The first thing I do is I make a clear goal list for the day. This is my to-do list for the day. And even if it's on my calendar, I write it out by hand. And I do this for a bunch of reasons. I said that flow states have triggers and these triggers marshal attention. Most of the ways we've been talking about it triggers that do this by driving dopamine and norepinephrine, these focusing chemicals. One of the other things that flow triggers do is they lower cognitive load. Cognitive load is all the shit you're thinking about at any one time. It's everything yeah, rattling yeah. around. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Right. It's the reason. So efficiency experts will often tell you and Marie Kondo, like start by cleaning your office. Yeah. Why should you? If you want more productivity, start by cleaning your office. Why is that? Why could that possibly work? It's because it lowers cognitive load. It frees up RAM. And if you free up energy in the brain, the brain automatically repurposes that energy for paying attention to the task at hand. So a clear goals list, knowing what you're going to do today in order of importance, starting with your hardest task, which is where you're going to put your 90-minute flow activity and going you know, to the deepest. And everything that goes – I always say a couple things – that are important here. I'm going to go. I'm going to go a little bit in depth on what I mean by clear goals because if you get it right, it's an amazing tool. So, all it is is a daily to-do list. You want to write it out by hand because there is a very tight link between the brain and how the brain works and how our hands move and embodied cognition. And typing on your computer won't get this done. So even my, I have a calendar. I use I use the same thing everybody else has used. But I start my day by opening up a little notebook, piece of paper right here, listing everything I'm going to do today. If it takes energy, it goes on the list. That's the important thing. Okay. Right. It's not just these are all the work. No, no, no. If I have to have a tough conversation with my wife, that's going to be draining and it's going to cost me energy and I have a limited energy budget. I'm a human being and I have a limited energy budget. Or if I got to walk my dog or go to the gym, of course, these things have to go on the list because they're going to take energy. So the other thing that I tell people is start with your hardest task first. And everything that's going to take energy and most importantly, run the following experiment. Figure out how many things you can do in a day and still be excellent at all of them. Mm. And that's how many go on your list. So over the next couple of weeks, track how many things you do in a day and see how many you can be great at, right? I, on, as a general rule, starting with, I, I always write for three to four hours every day, right? And then I always hike my dog immediately afterwards. So like, I know like those things, like that's the first five hours of every day of my, of my life, right? It's four hours for my like high flow activity and, and, you know, followed by a little bit of exercise, get into nature, clear my head. There's a bunch of reasons why I, I do that. Again, it's a multi-tool. We'll just stop there. But I like, those are my clear goal. Like, I, you know what I mean? I can start ordering my life that way. And finally with clear goals, some people like to start in the morning. I, if I have my druthers, it's the last thing I do before I leave my office. 
So like I draw, I draw, we talked about drawing, that'll sort of like calm me down, reset my system, and then I'll make my clear goal list for the next day. It takes about two minutes, right? That's the other thing when I said there's six to seven things you got to do every day. One of them is write a clear goals list for the next morning. One of them is do something to tune your nervous system up, right? That could be a gratitude practice, which again takes five minutes, could be a mindfulness practice, which for stress work is 11 minutes, right? Uh, a day. Or regular exercise, which is like for if you're doing it for your nervous system, it's like 20 minutes. So you can pick which one you want. And if you're if you're short on time, it's the gratitude practice because you can manicure your nervous system in five minutes a day with a gratitude practice. And then you have your clear goals list, which lowers cognitive load. So I've given you like in th these two 10 minute practices, if, for example, you're dealing with burnout, um, the simplest cure for burnout and where we always start people is primary flow activity one clear goals list every day active recovery protocol in place at the end of the day and and then if you really need another a tool uh daily gratitude practice but usually those four things provided you can step away from work for like 72 hours is enough to sort of start to reset any of these system and move them away from burnout back to normal incredible you know what's going to happen next time I meet you? I'm going to look younger than you. That's that's what you just did there. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> is that a challenge? Are you betting? Like, it is. In know. fact, in fact, this is going to be one of these 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 great bets. I will bet you five dollars. Oh man, man, I've been <laughs> uh, I've been dared in public. No, but it's actually it's so. so you see that the the main difference, honestly, Stephen, which I really admire about you, is that first of all, you make it so simple but you're unwavering about it. You see, my, my challenge is I know that these are important things for me, but then, yeah, one day I'll skip this, one day yeah, I'll so, skip that. So let me know, this is a, this is, it's a great point. It's a great point and I wanna, I wanna I, let me spend a minute on it and sorry to interrupt you, but the I notice this with a lot of people. And so I talk about this in, in my book, Now Our Country on Peak Performance Aging. So I, this is how I do this. I work for the boss. Hmm. I don't get to control my own life. I work for the boss. Who's the boss? The boss is the version of myself that writes up the to-do list because he has my long-term best interest at heart because the version of myself in the moment today, right here, right now, no, no, I am like everybody else. I want the quick high. I want the easy fix. I don't want to work as hard. Like, I am wired just like everybody else. There's nothing extraordinary going on. The only thing is I have made a decision that I've made two decisions. One, in deciding that I work for the boss, if it goes on the to-do list, it gets done no matter what. I don't give myself the option. And two, when I say I'm going to do something and I say it out loud or I write it down, I know something foundational about, about human behavior and human performance. And this is most one of the most important things I'm going to say today, which is, it's I tell myself I'm going to do something on a to-do list or out loud and I do it or I die. And one of the main reasons I do it is we, the brain pays attention, a lot of attention to our behavior, right? So one of the things the brain always wants to know is how's your follow through, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah exactly. It's testing you. you. Right. If you, if what brain wants to know, because I, if it goes on a to-do list, I have to do it my brain will get me, give me the energy I need to be up for the fight. 
But if my brain knows that when I say I'm going to do it, well, 50% of the time, I mean, actually, I'm not going to do it. My yeah. brain will not actually get up for the hard challenge. This is the same difference. You see a very similar version of this exact same effect in the differences between fixed and growth mindsets. Everybody talks Correct. about this, right? What's yeah. the big neurobiological difference between a fixed and a growth mindset? When you make an error with a fixed mindset, your brain doesn't bother to learn from the error because it doesn't believe you can learn from an error. So why waste the energy? And if you have a growth mindset, when you make an error, your brain is like, well, why didn't make that error? How do we do it better next time? Oh, this is, we're just going to build up that. And you learn. So it's the exact same thing. If your brain knows that when you put something on a to-do list that you lie to yourself, right? And you don't often complete your items on your to-do list, your brain goes, look, well, I've got a limited energy budget. Why am I going to bother creating all this motivational energy for something you're not going to do anyways? I'm burning calories I don't need to burn. I'm not so going to do interesting. that. Interesting. So it's basically optimizing based on your on pattern recognition of your behavior in the past. Pattern recognition on behavior in the past. And it's an understanding that the brain is foundational. The brain is a, it always wants to pre predict what is going to happen next. And it's an efficiency engine, right? 20% okay. of your, your, your energy goes into your brain. So first order of business is how do I save energy? Second order of business is what the is going to happen next. <laughs> exactly. So I have can meet it with the exact amount of resources, but not one calorie more. So I don't waste energy, right? That's the foundational thing the brain is trying to do at every moment of every day. Um, so when they talk about brains as predictive coding engines and hierarchical coding and all the, all those compute Bayesian computer terms that we talk about with in terms of brain dynamics these days, that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to predict what's going to happen next. So I can have the energy I need to meet the challenge without anything extra. And if you understand that that's where the brain starts, a pattern recognition system at its core that is doing exactly what I just said, you can start to optimize for a lot of stuff just based on, oh, this is what my brain is trying to do in this situation. Perfect. So like, <laughs> this is how, right? Like you're not fighting against yourself. Yeah. And I, but Mo, I think you hit on something that I want to go back to for a second because it's it ties all this together. A lot of what I'm saying is common sense, mm. as you pointed out, and it's not all that weird. What makes it tricky is exactly what you pointed out, which is it's so common that we don't sort of treat it like life or death, right? Like yeah. nobody thinks to themselves, oh man, I put 10 items on my, on my to-do list today. I've got eight done. You know, I, boy, am I really setting a bad precedent for future behavior by not, by skipping two of them. Right. You think, oh, I did a pretty good job today. I'm fucking tired and I'm going to skip these last two things. And, you know, let's go home. And that's about all we think of. Right. Yeah. We don't realize we're training our brain to one, not trust ourselves. Cause now, if you don't, wow. you're not finishing up to do this, you got to think about it. What are, who are you lying to? You're only lying to yourself. You're giving your brain a reason not to trust you. Oh, it goes on the to do <laughs> list, but you don't do it. Your brain pays attention. This is the same reason affirmations fail and gratitude works. We have a built-in bullshit detector, right? If you yeah. stand in the mirror and go, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, your brain's going, dude, you work at Walmart. The fuck are you talking about, right? Yeah. That's not motivating. That's demotivating. You're going in the other direction. If you do gratitude, I am so happy and grateful that, you know, my legs work this morning. Well, your brain goes, well, you know what? That is true. And that is actually a good reason to be happy and grateful. And your brain goes, oh, look, Maybe the world's a slightly better place than I thought. 
And right, and that has a lot of impact on our neurobiology, but it's based on truth. The difference between affirmation and gratitude is that we have a built-in bullshit detector. And we all know this. Like, I don't have to tell you you've got a built-in bullshit detector. You know you've come, but we don't think that our bullshit detector applies to ourself. And first and foremost, it applies to ourselves. It's not about navigating the social world and then trying to figure out, is she lying to me or what? I mean, that's a benefit, but it's about navigating our relationship to ourselves because that comes first. That's such an amazing way of putting it. You know, there's this simple repeating stuff that you don't believe is true and thinking that it will become, I mean, fake it till you make it, I think is the worst thing that humanity has ever created. It's like, <laughs> make it so that you don't have to fake it is my view of the world, right? Well, this is, let me, I'll give you an inverse, but this is really funny. I have all these discussions with people who like, they'll stand up and they'll be like, but I suffer from imposter syndrome and blah, blah. I hear this a lot, like the victimizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always tell people, I'm like, you're not suffering from imposter syndrome. You feel like a imposter because you're an imposter <laughs> when you actually deserve are the thing that you're trying to claim you are you're gonna stop feeling that way you've got a built-in bullshit detector yeah. for a brain your brain knows when you're lying to yourself when you get up on stage and try to present yourself as the world's leading authority of something and you've managed to convince everybody who was hiring you and everybody in the room it's true but you're standing up there and you know you know what actual expertise looks like and you're pretending to be that expertise your brain knows that's fake it till you make it right but like i always laugh at this imposter how do i get rid of imposter system expertise (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's like find out what it is that you're an imposter on and learn it Mm -hmm. yeah 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 i can i can see that working (laughs) i mean like i like it drives me crazy i'm like come on we like this is not you like you may not like the answer because it means you have to work hard but like we know this answer right (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it is, however, I mean, I, I have to say, you have to have the compassion for how many things are being thrown into people's minds every day, that it's becoming really confusing when in reality, I actually have to say, the only thing is you are in charge of your fate. It's as simple as that, right? Yeah, some if external events will happen in your life that you cannot control, even then, beyond the external e- event, you're in charge of your fate. If you write down a list of things to do and don't do it, don't blame anyone. Don't tell yourself that this is the world against you. Yeah, it might be against you today and you got caught up in commute today, but you're you're in charge of tomorrow. You can you can really work on it. You can change it. You you know, if you if you feel like an imposter, stop being an imposter and be an expert. It's it's really very straightforward. I agree. I so I think about it, I often think about it from the inverse of what you're saying. Uh, which is a realization I think I want to say I had probably in my early 30s. And it really, it's so obvious. And it's the inverse of what you just said, but it was the realization that my life, I, I don't know how it is, but I think a lot of us grow up with this idea that like one day I'm going to be an adult and it's going to be different or mm-hmm. one, right? Like something like that. And I like mine was the realization that my life is going to be nothing more or less than I make it. And every time I'm saying yes or no, right, I'm making that life. If I choose to spend an hour watching television versus I choose to spend an hour teaching myself how to do something, like I am making those choices, those little choices of what do I do with an extra hour a day, right? Those are the things that add up into quality of life and accomplishments and and, and those sorts of things. And uh, 
This is one of the, the hardest. There's a couple things that are really hard about training people in peak performance from a conceptual level. And I think one of the hardest things to get people to understand is that peak performance works like compound interest, right? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit today. It's a little bit tomorrow. Right. And, but yes. you do it for a couple and of it years does compound. It totally compounds because if you get into, I mean, you know this, if you start getting really good at flow, I'll give you an example from something spectacular that we all, everybody knows Richard Branson, but in Stealing Fire, right? There's a brand, Richard Branson quote in Stealing Fire, where he was talking to uh, Jamie Wheel, my co-writer uh, and myself about this. And he was like, dude, two hours in flow, there is nothing I can't get done, right? Mm -hmm. What's the secret of my success? And this is not just Branson. This is every successful person over time. This is Maslow, what Maslow figured out back in the 50s, right? He figured out that all the, the, the only commonality among most successful people on the planet was that all figured out how to alter their consciousness and drop into flow and use it as a, to generate their success. This was, you know, we've known this, we've known this a long time, 70 years at this point, 80 years. I don't know when Maslow did that original research. I want to say 54, but I think that was when he published it. Yeah. Um, and I could be wrong because I'm not. That's he, Scott Barry Kaufman's the Maslow expert. <laughs> I'm just friends with the expert. <laughs> yeah. Then you make it and it, you do it. Like what that really means is just showing up and doing the same thing over and over and over again. Outcomes, yeah. Right. Like I'm going to write every day, irregard and I'm not going to care how it makes me feel. It could suck. It could be great. I don't want to ride the high too high. I don't want to ride the low too low. I don't want to take it too seriously because I'm going to edit it anyways later or whatever it is. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, it means I'm going to go work out every day. I'm going to try to get 90 minutes of exercise in every day. I'm going to write for, you know, at least 90 minutes. You know, and there's a, like a handful of these things. And it's just the only difference between, I think, like myself and the next person or peak performers in general, and the next person is we don't deviate. Yeah. We figure this right. We just, this is what it takes for. And some of it I think is like, I think it's sort of self-reservation because a lot of the peak performers I know are not the most emotionally high functioning people to begin with. They figured out one way they can live really efficiently and they do that. Right. And they learn not to deviate because they don't have a ton of emotional control. Um, and it's especially, you know, I come out of the world you come out of. I'm an artist. I'm a creative. I, you know what I mean? Like I always, I used to watch creatives. I mean, like people who had more raw talent than yeah. I'll ever hope to have. Right. Yeah. But I used to watch them fail all the time, like fail people, people who would get like artists, painters who would get MoMA shows and be unable to like do the paintings for the show, even though they were producing a painting a day for 10 years and suddenly like this happened, they can't do it. Or thing like I, I kept watching people fail. And I realized that the, the difference between the ones who fail and the ones who succeed was literally like this, this checklist. The ones who succeed have a checklist that they're gonna execute on every day, no matter what. And the ones who fail are the ones who are going to go, oh, Life punched me in the mouth. I've got emotions. I'm not going to execute today. Instead, I'm going to drink or stay in bed or right, like whatever. The difference was literally like who just gets up when they feel bad and executes on the checklist, knowing the checklist is going to make them feel better because they learned that lesson. The checklist originally comes up. I think most peak performers develop it as a way to manage their own emotions. They don't develop it seeking for peak performance. They often develop it for like, how do I deal with myself psychologically? And peak performance is sort of, sort of the byproduct.
That is so spot on. I mean, again, one of my habits since really I started studying actually for university, not even working, was that idea of if it comes on the list, it will be done. That's it. And that's the whole idea. And, and you know, yes, if really, if it's force majeure, which happens like what, three times a year, right. I'm going to do it the next day. Right. You know, exactly. As simple as that. Yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, it's not, it's so funny. And this was, this is, I don't know about you, Mo. I, and I look at today, I like, it took me a really long time to get my shit together. You know what I mean? Like I was <laughs> sort of a bartender into my late twenties. I, I mean, I was as a writer and things like that, but I was still like, I mean, as a bartender. So like, I don't think I, you know, I, there were not an all nights that ended sober. Let me just put it that way. Right. <laughs> I didn't know you say those things in public. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, I say all kinds of things in public. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it took me a really long time to sort of get there. But like, all I did along the way is, I mean, like I was a f- on a lot of categories, but it didn't change the fact that I wrote every day. I worked out every day. I did a couple other things every day. And then I might like go do acid and go surfing. Right. But like the checklist got done before, you know, even before that stuff got done. And that's always been pretty constant. And mostly it was because it was emotional regulation. Yeah. I was trying to like manage my nervous system. Yeah. You're amazing, my man. I, I really, 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 I mean, I can't thank you enough. This was so wonderful. So eye opening, so full of energy. And honestly, solid advice on so many levels. Honestly, Stephen, thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Well, always a delight to hang out with you. Yeah, I mean, honestly, for all of you guys listening, I didn't do this one for you. I did this one because it's just a pleasure to talk to Stephen. It's always something new. It's always something energizing. I always come out actually with a checklist of, of things that I will end up doing. I hope you did the same. I hope you realized that a lot of what you can achieve in life is up to you. It's in your hands. Achieving a flow state is not only enabling you to perform at peak performance, but it's also aligning you with who, with the person that you are in so many ways. It definitely is something that you should have on your list. I cannot recommend enough uh, Stephen's work. Honestly, if you haven't read the books, read the books. Uh, if you want to join his training, Stephen's all over the internet. You'll always be able to find him and it won't be a waste of your time. I can absolutely guarantee you that. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have those wonderful conversations with amazing people, record them for you to join us. And um, yeah, I will always say that if you're running and revving so fast every day, you're not really at your peak performance. Try to find a, a little bit of time to slow down, a little bit of time to flow. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.